0: Welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lachlan Summers. Today I'll be talking with Dr. Leah Zani, whose book Bomb Children, Life in the Form of Battlefields of Laos, was published by Duke University Press in 2019. Dr. Zani received her PhD from University of California Irvine in 2017. Her work has been published in several academic journals, such as Environmental Humanities, Anthropology and Humanism, and American Anthropologist alongside a mountain of public-facing works and poetry. She is a public anthropologist, who is also the poetry editor at Anthropology and Humanism. Dr. Zani is joining us today to tell us about Bomb Children, Life in the Formal Battlefields of Laos. The research for the book takes place half a century after the CIA's secret war in Laos, which was the largest bombing campaign in history, and examines the long term effects of air warfare by looking at how the explosive remnants of war build themselves into people's everyday lives. Examining how this context of extreme uncertainty is embodied and lived, Dr. Zani uses ethnography and poetry alongside one another in a fine grained and at times strikingly beautiful analysis of the relationship between ongoing war violence and post war revival. Dr. Zani, thank you for joining us on the New Books Network.
1: I'm delighted to be here. Thanks, Laughlin.
0: So, to begin with, I, I want to know about your, your educational background. Like, where did you study throughout your education? Who did you study with, and who did you study under?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, I've taken a bit of an unusual route in that I'm um, a public scholar and a poet and an artist, in in addition to being an anthropologist. And I'm lucky to have had mentors who have guided me through that process. Um, UC Irvine is a wonderful place to do that kind of exploratory research. It's a very forward looking, uh, theoretically cutting edge department. And whenever I went to my advisors and was like, I want to do some kind of arts-based method, um, Tom Bellsdorf, Maisan, Jenny Terry were all like, that sounds great, Leah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I feel fantastic. like that's a, yeah, a fairly unique experience in grad school. Mm. Um, so from the very beginning of... Um, my training as an anthropologist, I was already interested in using various kinds of arts based methods um and actively sought out mentors across both social science and humanities and arts departments um in order to support my training because I knew I couldn't do it by myself. so it's been an interesting experience of figuring out my own path, for example i uh I took classes um drama classes to try to come up with a more embodied um, ethnographic method where I was really rooted in my, in my own body. And in order to do that, I had to convince people in the drama department such as Eli Simon um, to uh, let me into their, their drama classes.
0: Wow. This is is super interesting. So how did you kind of uh, direct all of this kind of like, Uh, all this interest outside of anthropology toward an anthropological project that that became the basis of your dissertation?
1: I think that it's just an inherent part of how I experience the world and how I approach research. Uh, Research to me is an extremely holistic, creative process that has to be negotiated with the world. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the world is big and complex. So it, it seems to be necessary, at least for me as a researcher, to explore this more expansive toolkit of resources um, rather than limiting myself or what feels to me like a limitation towards a more conventional uh, field
2: workers toolkit. Mm -hmm.
0: And so can we talk about, say, the the, the context of your book and of your your dissertation research? Can you say a little bit more about CIA's secret war in Laos? I I guess it's kind of a truism, but I I really didn't know much about that secret war.
1: Yeah. Well, yes, it's the secret. It, it was a secret to me as well. I, I had no intention of studying the secret war in Laos. It was something that I, I, I never learned either. Um And so in that sense, I think this project was latent in my own upbringing in California, fully embedded in American militarism and our culture of war, which we can see so profoundly on display now uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement and policing on campuses and just a general sort of American culture of violence, both here and abroad. So this project for me has partially been coming to grips with, um, the way that violence is part of my own life, even though I have ostensibly lived my entire life
2: at peace. Mm -hmm.
1: So, um, when, when I started this project, I began researching Laos as a potential field site um, without knowing that Laos had been targeted for 10 years as part of a massive covert CIA operation, the largest CIA operation in history, Mm -hmm. the largest bombing campaign in history, and that Laos is in fact the world's most bombed country. I had no idea of any of that when I started this project. Mm
0: And so what's the, the significance of the, the book's title, Bomb Children? Because as I approached it, I thought it was meaning one thing, uh, and then I realized Bomb Children kind of had a a very different meaning in the way you were talking about it.
1: What was the meaning that, that you first uh, interpreted?
0: I just thought in terms of, like, you, you're dealing with uh, people that kind of live alongside and are growing up alongside bombs. So I, I thought the Bomb Children were the, the people. Um, but then I saw... Like you're talking about specific types of, of uh, munitions.
1: Yeah, um, that's that's a, those are both resonances that I was trying to pull out. And so I'm glad that you got both of those. I think the best way for me to answer your question is actually to read the poem in the book that addresses that.
2: Mm, please.
1: Which is the the last poem in the book. So in in the Lao language uh cluster submunitions are called Mukla bird which means bomb child or bomb children. Um, and when I w- learned this I was at a a clearance site and a clearance technician called me over because he had just found a cluster submunition of BLU26. Uh-huh. And this bomb was fully intact um and active could explode at any moment. And he was carefully uncovering it with his hands because it's too fragile to use a, a tool with. You have to you wow. have to dig it up with your hands. And he calls me over and he says, "Look, there is a bomb, child." Wow. So that was when I first heard this this phrase used was and and at first I was like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> 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 and, and so I I asked one of my other um, interlocutors. What does he mean? Why is he calling this bomb a child? And that's when I learned that in Lao they're referred to as, as children, children of this larger bomb. Because the way that cluster submunitions work is there's a larger bomb, which then breaks open in midair to disperse hundreds or thousands of smaller bombs. So you have this larger bomb, a mother bomb, and then these smaller bombs, bomb children. Right. So I wrote a poem. I wrote a poem about this um, this encounter. Field poem 18. Children. Bomb children. How do we know our mothers if they destroy themselves? Her shaking, her falling down, opens herself, her labor, her hollowness without childhood. 700 dropped near the village water pump.
0: Yeah, this, like, one of the things that strikes me so much about your book is how uh, military waste is the kind of your object of observation. It's like the thing you're looking at. But it's always shifting back and forth between like a, a thing that's happening in the world and a mode of an, uh, analyzing what's happening in the world. So you're thinking, you know, you're looking at military ways, but also thinking about it theoretically. It's a, a form of contamination. It has these capacities that go beyond the intentions of military strategists. It has this unique form of like something like agency that's founded on its capacity to destroy itself. And then you think uh, uh, about these kind of spaces materially as kind of bomb ecologies. Could you maybe talk a little bit about how you conceive of and theorize military waste in this book?
1: Yeah, um, all of the work that you're describing was uh, inc- incredibly hard to do. <laughs> uh, and I think that there are specific challenges to studying military waste that compel Um, ethically compel changes in method. Um, Like I'm studying a secret war. Much of the the context that a field worker takes for granted, a historical context, uh, collective knowledge, is just absent. And the war ended 40 years ago. So most of what I'm dealing with ethnographically is silenced, residual Traces, leftovers, um, things that people don't even really fully understand themselves, and and I and so I had this sense when I started doing this fieldwork of being just really, I I, I started to explain explain it to myself as a kind of vertigo where I realized that I was not actually able to perceive what I needed to perceive in order to study this. I needed to change the way that I was collecting data and and being present in my field site. And so that that kind of awareness that there were things happening that I was not perceiving properly compelled me to then really reassess my research methods and start to explore some of these more creative methods, um, such as poetry. But the poetry is really rooted in that desire to uh, create a more accurate um, data collection and analysis method, to be responsive to the challenges of this field site in order to develop methods that are suited to the specific um, challenges of studying secret war and military waste.
0: Right. Right. This is all really, really interesting to me. And I have a question about poetry uh, in a couple of questions time. But one thing I want to kind of talk about a little bit is one of this really unique conceptual frame that you use, which is involving uh, using kind of paired analytics to kind of uh, engage in kind of like a parallel analysis. You've got dragon, river, remains, revival, ghost, gold. Can you talk a little bit about how you develop this, uh, this analytic and what it offers your analysis in this context?
1: Yeah, this is a a very specific example of um, what you were asking in that earlier question um, about uh, changing my um, modes of perception, the the sort of empiricism of research in order to be aware of these things that would otherwise get lost in a more conventional uh, research uh, practice. So, Laos is both a rapidly developing country and the most bombed country in the world. People in their daily lives are experiencing multiple layering effects of um, economic revival and ongoing massive violence. And I realized very quickly that in order to understand the cultural dynamics that are provoked by um, military waste, it was necessary to look at both of these processes simultaneously. Without collapsing them into each other, that both of these processes occur um, somewhat independently, but interact and layer on top of each other, and needed to be treated in that way. So I use a variety of um, kind of analytics um, and theories to get at this this layering effect, um, and parallelism is one of them. And this is a this is a, a an idea that I picked up. Because I'm a poet um, and I came into the field with this awareness of poetry and this practice of writing poetry, um, parallelism is a, uh, a poetic practice in, in Southeast Asia. It's not limited to Laos, in which poems are split across multiple columns, parallel columns, and, and you read across the columns or you read down each column. So there are multiple readings within each poem. And each poem is structured by these, these gaps between columns. Um, so every part of the poem has a pair on the other side of, of the gap. And so this this poetic tradition, as I started reading more Lao poetry and writing more poems myself in the field, I really started to realize like the, the incredible um, resonance of this, this poetic form um, for creating my own independent theories about post-war culture in Laos. Um, I also started, as my Lao language skills got better, started to notice that people were using parallelisms in daily life to talk about many of these things that I was studying. Um, so in parallelisms are a a common feature of, um, everyday life in Laos, people will mention, um, some, something good and something bad at the same time. And then these two sort of statements kind of hang in a balance together with this, this necessary fruitful gap between them. And once I had picked up on this parallelism tradition, I was able to sort of hear those fruitful
2: gaps.
0: Yeah, I, I find this so wonderfully interesting as a process of kind of like refusing to kind of. Uh, to collapse the story down to one side or another, to kind of let these things sit together in a in a really productive tension. Um, but my favorite example of parallelism that, that you're using is in the second chapter where you're talking about Lao development and the gold mine that's also a ghost mine. So on the one hand, you're talking about how future-oriented projects of revival reanimate remains from the past. So this revival remains dyad is one of the, the parallel analytics that you're using here. Um, But you also use the ghost mine and the gold mine as a related parallel analytic, but it's one that emerged completely by chance. Like your interpreter accidentally said ghost mine when they were translating gold mine. And you use this slippage as a central focus in this chapter, but you don't try to theorize or explain why your interpreter made that slip up. And as I was reading, I could imagine somebody trying to stabilize that moment as a structural or identify some kind of cause for it. But you let the slippage stay there as an accident in order to better conceive how accidents are meaningful. Could you maybe recount for us this moment and explain what you're driving at here by leaving this moment kind of unsteady?
1: Absolutely. I love that question. Yeah. So I, I was visiting this this area around this gold mine, which is incredibly important to the Lao government's development plan. It's a kind of centerpiece, the, the jewel in the crown of, of the Lao um, economic development story, which, they, which is one of increasing uh, wealth. So I was – but this is – this. the gold mine is right in the middle of one of the most heavily bombed parts of Laos. And the gold mine itself is built right on top of what was a um, a communist hideout during the war and was massively bombed. So they – before they dug up any gold at this mine, they were digging up bombs. The first things that were dug out of this mine were bombs, not gold. So the the mine itself is already existing in this – uh, this kind of like strange place that I, that the whole book is in and which I was, I'm trying to describe about needing to pay attention to to multiple layers of things at once. And here they are at the mine, like they're physical layers in the soil, uh, layers of bombs, layers of gold, layers of historical artifacts, layers of ghosts that are all being dug up at the mine at once. So I'm, I've been invited into this territory by a clearance organization to do research in the community. Um, and My translator and I go to a village that's known for its war scrap trading. So these people are also digging things out of the soil. They're digging up bombs and they're selling them on the black market. And I'm talking to one of these um, black market traders and she's, she's telling me stories about the, the runoff from the mine being full of bombs Mm -hmm. And she's talking about finding all these bombs downstream from the gold mine. And my translator is helping me follow along with the conversation. And my translator accidentally says ghost mine instead of gold mine. And I look at my translator and I'm like, wait, what did you just say? <laughs> and in that, it was a strange moment because I realized cuz I my law is good enough that I can follow along with the conversation as well. I realized that we had been talking about ghosts the whole time. Huh. That the entire conversation had kind of been animated in the background by the war dead that that lived in the village by this 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 war scrap traders family her brother had died in a bomb explosion when she was a child. Others had died in the village as well, that uh, I I had also heard ghosts uh, were being dug up at the gold mine and possessing mine workers, that there's this whole sort of language of ghosts that was present in the conversation without being overtly voiced. And it felt like that slippage between gold mine and ghost mine, it felt like an important slippage. Mm. It sort of opened up a possibility within the conversation for us to talk about this hidden narrative of ghosts that had been present the whole time, and so once our my interlocutor realized that I had heard ghost mine instead of gold mine, suddenly the entire conversation switched and we started talking about ghosts. And she starts telling me about her brother uh, dying in that explosion, and she tells me a story about um, other people in the village who have died as well, and what it's like to live in a village where people are dying in these bombs that are exploding 30, 40 years after a war ended. But I don't think that second half of the interview about ghosts would have happened if I hadn't been receptive to this translation accident between gold mine and ghost mine. And those kind of everything that's happening in Laos is from a certain perspective, a kind of huge accident, like unexploded ordnance, are generally referred to as accidents. And while I politically reject that language because I think that a bomb explosion is always intentional, this language of the accident is, is very present in Laos. People describe these explosions as accidents, their own economic hardships as accidents. And so I think playing around with this language of the accident and with like what happens when you really pay attention to these accidents and they're actually these little windows into potential uh, into other worlds that are all around us that we can't necessarily see ghosts that are present in our conversations if we listen for them
0: right and this is to me it's just so fascinating um uh, like i i really admire the way that you kind of that you dig into living with accidents rather than you know root causes of accidents and you kind of sit with what it is to, to kind of live uh, in an an accident prone region or for lack of a better term. And I'm wondering if this kind of relates, uh, you know, living with accidents and the language of accidents and you're kind of, you're sitting with the the slippage between ghost and gold mine. Does this relate to to some of your arguments you make early in the book about the place for for thin ethnographic description and anthropology, where you say that given the security concerns and the unknowability of the stuff that you're researching, you're open to using a thin description rather than thick, uh, where you can uh, you, you say that it's a, an approach that uses not knowing as data rather than the absence of data. Is this related here?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I think that because I'm dealing with information that has been actively suppressed, and, and I'm also doing research in an authoritarian context uh, where state violence is an ever-present threat, the way that we collect data and the data that we're looking for needs to be responsive to these larger ethical concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that I've really struggled with throughout the course of this project. And that transition from thick description to thin description was one that was extremely fraught for me because I was brought up as an anthropologist reading Clifford Gertz, just like everybody else. Yeah. So I have this, like, this pretty heavy investment in this idea of like incredibly detailed, thick, contextually rich descriptions. And th- those sorts of descriptions are just not possible in a lot context. And there are cultural reasons for that. Like, and this is another reason why I think listening to these kind of linguistic accidents is important. Uh, there are cultural norms about what it's appropriate to say and not appropriate to say that make it very difficult to talk about violence and there are real incredibly profound threats uh like police harassment extrajudicial violence murder um spies that made it extremely difficult for people to be overt about what they were describing to me and i i, I it, it's something that i'm still struggling with honestly which is why i'm i'm hesitating to to give you a complete answer and i apologize <laughs>
0: No, that's okay. Like, uh, I think I don't know. You should feel good about doing a really. It's like a deeply detailed thinness, uh, it, the, where the unknowing is is is, re- or like the not knowing is is really firmly present. Uh, and I think that's particularly true in the third chapter, where you're talking about like the, the sociocultural blast radius, where you're talking about how you sound creates territory where explosions connect physical vibrations and bodily sensations and affects and cultural auditory uh, practices. And so this is a, a situation of unknowing in which the senses, especially hearing are critical for survival all the while the sound of explosions can destroy hearing. And similarly, it's the destruction caused by the explosions that creates your field site rather than destroys it. Can you talk about the complexities of the sociocultural blast radius as both an analytic and a a material space?
1: Yeah, um, this was another instance in which this research compelled me to reassess my my methodological practice. So uh, there's a lot of discussion in anthropology about – how to study violence, what the the appropriate distance is for um, studying um, dangerous topics, uh, what kind of intimacy is appropriate with an interlocutor. And a lot of these concerns are um, physically manifest in the study of explosives clearance because there is a physical blast zone around each explosion, around each bomb that will destroy you. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So you can like physically mark on the ground where the safe zones are and what kind of intimacy is possible. And I was thinking about this work because it it, clearance teams will, will measure to the meter where these safe zones are and these danger zones are. And I was thinking about the the incredible physicality of that Mm -hmm. and contrasting it with, the kinds of dangers that many of my interlocutors were describing in their own lives, related to these blasts, that were not being marked on the ground, and that could not be measured to the meter, things like social stigma, being unable to find a job, uh, having to drop out of school, yeah, being unable to 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 find a spouse or have children, having your entire life ripped apart in some cases by these explosions, and. It occurred to me that this, this, this zone of sociocultural destruction was much larger than what the clearance technicians were marking on the ground. And I started thinking about this a little bit more, which was the, the sort of root of uh, what I describe in that chapter. Um, and in that chapter, I'm trying to understand okay, well, how can I access what is happening in this zone of destruction, both this physical blast radius and then the sociocultural blast radius, which is much larger. And how do people move in and out of these zones of safety and danger? How are they navigating the space? And I paid attention to the way that people were moving through this space and realized that sound was one of the primary ways that people were navigating the space. Because explosions are sound. They're sonic phenomena. And sound is one of the, the the safest ways that you can learn to perceive the danger of an explosion um, from a distance. But then the kind of strange undoing irony here is that the closer you get to the center of the explosion, the harder it is to hear. And at the center of a blast, there is no sound. It's completely silent. And you're dead. Right. <laughs> So there's this, like, this this strange, surreal sonic territory where at one extreme, there's total silence. And at another, um, there's also total silence because you're so far away from the blast, you can't hear it anymore. And so you need to find this like what zone in the middle where you can still hear the explosion so you know where it is and if anybody's hurt and what needs to happen, but not so close that you yourself are physically hurt. Um, and different people hear in this, this area differently. So one of the sort of vexations of this fieldwork was that I could never hear these, ex- these explosions from afar. I just didn't have the, um, the, the, the sonic attunement that many of my, my bomb clearance uh, interlocutors had. So it, frequently this would happen. Someone would say, oh, did you hear that? That was an explosion. They're, they're demolishing bombs on the other side of the valley. I never heard it. Wow. <laughs> uh, and so that kind of attunement of the senses to perceive and locate oneself within this, this blast radius, the sociocultural blast radius and physical blast radius is, is the focus of that chapter.
0: Right. One thing that's really striking me as you're talking uh, through what, what it is to live in the sociocultural blast radius, are these kind of these dual arguments I see you making about like temporality and, and disability uh, and I'm going to try to ask this question. I'm not entirely convinced it's going to come out, um, but you're, you are at once talking about haunting as a material thing in which old bombs suddenly resurface in the present. But you're also talking about living with old bombs as being an exposure to risk that is constitutive of the everyday life, of everyday life. And so the division between a past bomb and a present bomb kind of disappears. But moreover, when omnipresent risk is constitutive of social life, you note that this also disrupts binaries between survivor and victim and between abled and disabled. So I'm interested in the argument you make about haunting as a material form and how it relates to the argument you're making about disability and debility.
2: Yeah. So
1: I originally came to this topic as a disability scholar. Mm -hmm. uh, And that's what originally brought me to Laos is that I was going to do a project on on disability and on the prosthetics clinic. So what the the theoretical lines that you're tracing are evidence of that much earlier project around disability in particular uh-huh. so the, the the kind of the big question that I started to ask myself beginning with my very first fieldwork in Laos which was in 2012 was is being in danger a disability mm-hmm. like all of these people are subject to ongoing statistically likely, danger. Like risk is this omnipresent force, And it has these huge impacts on one's life, whether or not you're actually maimed Mm -hmm. in an explosion. This is referencing back to the sociocultural blast radius, Mm -hmm. that people who are caught in the radius of these bombs can experience huge disabling impacts, regardless of whether they're actually physically harmed. And so trying to understand the kind of um, the, the necropolitics of widespread risk has been one of the challenges of this project. And I think hooks up to other large related projects around, for example, climate change, where the nature of risk itself changes because the entire context has been transformed or contaminated in a way that is almost beyond our ability to understand that human activity, in this case, in my research, it's war, has utterly transformed everyday life. Mm -hmm. And certain things are now likely that were unthinkable Mm -hmm. a century ago. And daily life has been kind of twisted and shaped by this ever-present violence in a way that isn't necessarily warlike. It's just a kind of new space. It's like a new ecology things have just, are now just different. And trying to understand those transformations, the way that militarism affects everyday life and how to understand these sort of kind of larger worlds that we're in now, the way that this uh, long-term impact of um, the Cold War and the Vietnam War is, we are now only starting to understand the long-term impact of of these, these styles of warfare.
0: Is this related to the kind of one of the broader arguments of the book, which is that post-war zones are their own cultural form or area study? Could you, could you kind of elaborate upon that argument a little?
1: Yeah, I, I, as I started to do my, my literature review for this book, I noticed a trend, which was that what little had been written about military waste in anthropology had been written as a kind of side project, a provocation because the anthropologist field site had been contaminated and they felt compelled to study military waste. It was never the original intended topic of study. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, I think my book might be one of the first where it's like specifically intentionally about military waste. And I was thinking about the way that these, Mm -hmm. in each instance, military waste was treated as a unique case, like Sierra Leone, ireland sri lanka whatever the thing is it was treated as a unique case and yet what was happening in each of these unique cases was highly relevant to what i was looking at in laos
2: right.
1: yeah and i was also thinking about the the history of militarized area studies where area studies in academia have historically largely been imperial projects hooked up to different right. programs of warfare like southeast asian studies has historically been a product of uh, the cold war And realizing that I think it's actually that that military waste now in its sort of global reach, um, and the, the way that these risks are becoming endemic um compels a more focused global analysis of these this as a as a phenomena worthy of study in and of itself, no longer as a collection of disparate cases, but as a larger phenomena. Deserving of shared theories and resources and methods, and that's what I—that's part of what I'm trying to do with this book. And this back, this idea of um, like as being in danger of disability—that—that's one of the questions that becomes much easier to ask when you're dealing with post-war zones as a cultural or area studies. That's a question that you could ask in a variety of different zones, and that becomes easier to ask when you can look at Sierra Leone and Sri Lanka as part of a shared terrain of military wasting, rather than as separate cases that have nothing in common.
0: Right. So this book is uh, full of really lyrical and wonderful writing, uh, but the chapters themselves are separated by a type of writing that you call field poems. Uh, they're all numbered, and so it seems like you must have written like dozens and dozens of them while you're researching. Uh, I'm wondering like, if you could talk a little bit about these poems and, and the idea of poetry as method and, and how how you kind of came to work with poetry in a post-war context.
1: Yeah, I didn't intend to write poetry for this project, though I had an existing practice as a poet prior to starting my field work in Laos, and I guess one of the themes that's running through this entire interview is mm-hmm. – I wanted my my theory and my method to be supple and responsive to the specific needs of this topic. And as I explored my own uncertainty about how to carry out this research, I found myself intuitively crafting poems. So I'll tell you about the first the first instance of this happening. So this was back way back in 2012 when I first went to Laos. Mm-hmm. And yet again, I had been invited by a clearance team to do research in an area that they were clearing, and I went to this 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 area. Uh, it's called Pulsevan on the uh, Plain of Jars and Laos. and I I had this this sense of this surreal sense of vertigo, where I felt like I was constantly sort of teetering over the edge of something that I didn't understand, where. The entire town was built on top of bombs. There had been no clearance prior to rebuilding the town after the war. So people's homes and restaurants, hotels, markets were built on top of bombs and everybody knew it. Um, Like I had, there was this one uh, shopkeeper that I got to know very well and we're, we're having tea together and um and he says oh yeah there's a there's a 500 pound bomb underneath this cafe (laughs) Mm. (laughs) um and he had tried to clear it himself but it was it was too big he didn't he didn't know how to get rid of it so he just buried it again and left it there and built his cafe on top of it so trying to kind of have this sort of double vision for both this thriving boomtown and the bombs just underneath. um, I didn't know how to see both of those things at the same time, and I didn't know how to wrestle with this kind of strange vertigo of a place that had been utterly flattened by a decade of massive air warfare, and then was being rebuilt from the wreckage. Like literally bits and pieces of bombs were being used to rebuild people's houses. Um, but not in an obvious way, like you, you wouldn't necessarily notice it. But as soon as I started to like ask people and talk about it and take photos, I'd be like, oh, the the foundation of this house is literally made out of bombs. So I just didn't know how to think about that.
0: <laughs> right. There's a really striking photo of a house whose stilts are the the tail of, a, of several bombs.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I during that same fieldwork encounter, uh, I went out into a um, a village, and I'm walking through this field, and it's just full of bombs, all sorts of different kinds of bombs in the field, and um, the the man that I'm with, he leans down and picks up a handful of earth, and he shows it to me, and I can see there are little black bits of things in the soil, and he tells me that that's gunpowder, they're little capsules of gunpowder um, that are now level, leavened into the soil like seeds. And he, he shows this to me and he says, bombs are part of life.
2: Wow.
1: And, and I, I, I ask him to explain that to me. What do you mean? How, do, how are bombs part of life? And he starts to describe all the ways that bombs are part of his economic livelihood, his domestic life the way that he makes tools out of uh, repurposed bombs, that his his life has been built out of the ruins of this war. And so it's it's just, it seems to me completely inadequate to only talk about violence or suffering in that context. Like this man has built a life that is worthy of our attention and care.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And learning to see both that incredible resilient power to live a meaningful life, while also acknowledging massive violence has been one of the the central struggles of this book and and something that poetry, I think, is particularly suited to address. (laughs) Because poetry is kind of open-ended. It has the potential to hold those tensions together um, in a way that honors both experiences. And so that is when I started writing poetry, was in response to this this specific field visit to poncevant and meeting that cafe owner and going to that field and hearing that phrase bombs are part of life
0: right one thing that's just constant through this book is i just see you grappling with ways as you just said before it how to be how to have your theory and method really kind of respond to one another like how you can destabilize and reshape things so as to better account for, for the things that you're looking at and I think you do a really tremendous job of making that that ongoing process uh, like visible in, in the ethnography, because to me, ethnography, like one of the good things about it is that, you know, you reject the ideas that you have the answers beforehand and you try to show concepts and process. But often in the writing, that sense of process is lost. But at several moments throughout your book, I see you, you know, referring to, you know, how good you were at this point in time in your research uh, at Lao language or referring to the interpreter that you're working with. Um, And and even now in this conversation, you're you're making kind of several, you're making explicit that which goes unmentioned in ethnography. Uh, I'm wondering if this was an intentional presentation of of the actual kind of material process of ethnography.
1: I think that when... If I had done, and I don't think I'm the kind of person that's capable of this, but if I had done a a very conventional, like kinship study, (laughs) I I don't think I would have felt compelled to, uh, to make, to make this so transparent.
0: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'm glad you didn't do a kinship study. There's,
1: there's a, a, a huge value in doing those kinds of studies. That's just not the kind of researcher that I am. Uh, so um because of what I was studying and, and who I am and how I engage with the world and what I personally find fascinating, it just felt absolutely necessary to make this internal work visible, um not only as a kind of ethical presentation, particularly because I'm making several unconventional choices about. Thin description, for example, that I think really need to be explained. Um, but also because I think that this kind of work is increasingly vital because our world has been contaminated and we need to change how we study things. Um, and if I want people to really do that, I have to make clear to them how I did it, how I changed my own research to be responsive to the way the world has been contaminated by, by militarism or whatever the thing is that you're studying.
0: And so now I know you have a book that's coming out, uh, named strike patterns, life after a secret war. I, I'm interested in knowing a little bit more about this piece. Cause, uh, as I understand it, it's a piece of ethnographic fiction.
1: Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's my first novel. So because this book bomb children was, um, Written in this this thin way where there are almost no subject identifiers, the only person I mentioned by name is Son bat Pon, who was murdered by the Lao secret police. So much was left out, so much that I wanted mm-hmm. to write about. And I also think that as writing this first book helped me realize the, the, the limitations and um, also privileges of academic writing. And as I continue to explore what the value is of doing this kind of research and what impact I want it to have, I've, I've come to the conviction that creative and literary methods are essential to making my research ethically actionable for people, for a wider audience. So I'm writing this next book, also based on the same research in Laos, but it includes a kind of vitality and liveliness mm. that was just not possible in Bond Children, um, for mostly because of subject protections. Um, and also because I, I, if I want to engage this like larger audience, an audience that's, that's not academic, um, I think I need to use more, take advantage of these creative methods.
0: And do you see the the literary method of ethnographic fiction offering something that, uh, say, the field poems didn't? Are you able to kind of render life in a different way through ethnographic fiction than these poems?
1: I think that I write fiction in the same way that I write poems. They they are made by the same part of my brain.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And they they have similar – it's a similar literary frame. So I guess one way in which I understand this second book is that it is – in a sense, a, a work of, of poetic prose, that it's, it's as if I had written bomb children, but all poems. Uh, so yeah, so it, it's, because I, I think there are things that you can do in poetry that you just can't do in conventional ethnographic writing. Um, and as I've explored this project more, I think, really the best way for me to express many of the things that I'm trying to say to the people that I'm trying to talk
0: to. Okay. And outside of uh, outside of Strike Patterns, what's next for you? Uh, do you have uh, any other projects uh, going on at the moment?
1: Yeah, I do. Although I do want to say on the subject of Strike Patterns, um, I'm, I'm just finishing that manuscript up this month, and I'm sending it to my editor at the end of the month, so keep your fingers crossed for me.
0: Okay, I will. I promise. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, the other project I'm working on, and, and this is a very much – in development and on the drawing board um, is an exploration of um, high explosives in, in America, a kind of uh, ethnographic historical analysis of, of the way that high explosives have shaped modern American culture.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And this book is uh, begins in my hometown, Albany, California, which was also the site of America's first high explosives factory. Mm-hmm. This was something that I never knew growing up, mm-hmm. even though the factory was less, less than a mile from my house and the factory actually exploded and
2: yeah.
1: uh, completely changed the the shape of the um of the coastline in this area huh. and uh, and this was you know 100 years ago so it's still definitely within our our cultural memory and yet has been completely erased huh. and most of the people that died in that explosion were uh chinese laborers at the factory their names have gone have been completely just vanished from history. Um, and, and, and it looks like it's highly probable that they were buried in mass graves Ugh. unmarked. So this, this is a history that is very much local rooted in my own hometown, which I never learned about. And in many ways, it's the, the other side of the coin for what happened in Laos, like the violence that I'm studying and bond children and strike patterns has its obverse, which is the way that people are killed by these same weapons mm. in America when we manufacture them and test
0: them right.
1: and, the, and the way that that violence is disproportionately targeted against communities of color.
0: Right. Well, that, that I'm really, really looking forward to that work. It sounds fascinating. And I'm also looking forward to strike patterns, and I'm looking forward to rereading Bomb Children. Uh, I just want to thank you for writing such a compelling book and for joining me today to discuss it.
1: Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Your questions were
0: wonderful. Uh, Thank you. (laughs)